Welcome to episode 43 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Anything somebody does in bed other than sleeping can actually maintain the insomnia. Play on their devices, they watch TV, they read, they may talk to their bed partner. They might actually lie there trying to fall asleep. Instead, they're problem solving and ruminating. And all of these things actually start to develop an association between the bed and being awake rather than between the bed and being asleep. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Professor Sean Drummond, a cognitive neuroscientist and clinical psychologist at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. We've split this conversation into two parts. In this part, part one, we cover the mechanics of sleep, how much sleep we need, how much we actually get, the price for insufficient sleep, sleep patterns, caffeine and alcohol and how they impact our sleep, insomnia and sleep apnea. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au, a modern and approachable mental health directory, helping Australians connect with the right mental health practitioners. All the practitioners are available to see clients straight away. There are no waiting lists. They're all independent, licensed and insured, and available for online or in-person consultations. On TalkLink, you can watch a short video of each therapist to get to know them a little and check out their training and experience as well as their pricing in a transparent way to decide if this is someone that you would like to connect with. You can even find some sleep experts on talklink.com.au. Okay, let's dive in. I'm Professor Sean Drummond. I'm a professor of clinical neuroscience and in the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. I am trained as both a cognitive neuroscientist, which means I'm trained to understand what's going on in the brain and how it impacts our ability to think, reason, cognitive function. And I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. And so I have a really strong, and I've been doing sleep research since I was a second year undergraduate student. Uh, so for a very, very long time. And so I have a very strong passion in understanding on the one hand, the impact of sleep and sleep loss on brain function and cognition. And then on the other hand, I have a very strong interest in understanding the interaction of sleep and mental health. Uh, and, and then combining those two areas to really understand the role that the brain and that sleep plays as a biological process in the development, maintenance, and treatment of mental health disorders. Great. I want to tease all those different thoughts apart in, in some depth today, but maybe let's just start right at the beginning. Um, I guess from a, uh, a biological perspective, sleep looks like a crazy thing for us to do from a survival perspective. If you imagine humans roaming around in the savannah, a third of our day, we're in a vulnerable state. We're not conscious. Um, why would we do this and what's the point of sleep and why is it so important that our bodies can justify putting us in this really vulnerable state for such a long period of time? That's a fascinating question. You know, it's interesting the way you started that. Alan Rechthofen, who's one of the founders of sleep research, um, once said something very much like if sleep doesn't serve an absolutely vital function, it's the biggest mistake evolution ever made. Um, and, and he's absolutely right for the reasons that you suggested. We're extraordinarily vulnerable for a third of our lives. Um, 
And, and the interesting thing is sleep is conserved all up and down the evolutionary chain. Almost every single animal that we've looked at from tiny, you know, uh, organisms that are only a few cells big all the way up to humans, which are the most complex, everything sleeps. And so clearly it serves a vital function. And, and that function might change a little bit in up and down the evolutionary scale. Um, you know, certainly in humans, I think it's very clear at this stage, there isn't a function of sleep. There are many, many functions of sleep. Uh, and certainly the some of those function would, would include physiological restoration. It's a way that our body can literally repair and recharge itself to get prepared for the next day. It plays a very significant role in regulating or allowing our brain to regulate and process emotions properly. Uh, sleep plays a very big role in metabolism. And so it allows our metabolic functions to stay healthy and normal. Um, uh, some of the really interesting data in the last five, six years is showing that sleep actually helps to clear toxins from the brain. Um, and if these toxins are not cleared from the brain, then they increase the risk of things like Alzheimer's disease and, and other dementias. Um, we also know that sleep plays a, a, a strong role in memory consolidation. So the things that we learn during the day, sleep helps move those things from short-term memory into long-term memory. So, and I could probably go on and on. There's, there's so many things now that we know that sleep is absolutely vital for. Um, it starts to make more and more sense why we would make ourselves vulnerable for a third of the day in order to uh, undergo this process. I was one of those, uh, those readers of Matt Walker's book, Why We Sleep, who walked away from that book with the conclusion that the less you sleep, the earlier you will die. And it freaked me out. It really did. The The role of sleep, um, it was sort of a, an awakening for me in, in ways that I hadn't appreciated. And walking away from that, I, I do find that I justify and feel much better about sleeping. Um, I, I guess let, let's start with um, how much sleep is good sleep. And then I want to I really mine into your thoughts on what happens when it goes wrong. But... What, what is a good night of sleep? So for the typical adult in the middle years of life, so 30 to mid 60s or so, um, minimum of seven hours of sleep is the consensus of what is required to, to maintain long-term physical and psychological health. The window is probably more like somewhere between seven and eight and a half or nine hours of sleep. Now, I, I think what, what listeners need to keep in mind is that's not seven to eight and a half hours in bed because nobody sleeps 100% of the time they're in bed. Um, so it's really seven to eight and a half or nine hours of actual sleep. Right. Um, and I guess what happens as you go to the, the younger and the older ages, how much do you need when you're younger? And then as you age, I guess the assumption is you sleep less. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah. Well, so let's take those one at a time. So younger age, and I'm admittedly not a pediatric specialist by any stretch, um, but generally kids under 18 are more in the nine or 10 hour of sleep need range, depending on how young we're talking. And, you know, really tiny, tiny kids, infants are probably even more than that. Uh, but you think of your school-aged child. 
um, all the way up through high school, you're looking at nine or 10 hours of sleep. Rarely do they actually get that much, but that's how much the body actually needs. At the older end of the continuum, it's really interesting. I think a lot of us have, have um, heard that, just as you said, older adults sleep less. And there's sort of this assumption that therefore older adults need less sleep. But the reality is our sleep need doesn't really seem to change across the adult lifespan. The ability to sleep all night long and the ability to stay awake all day long does start to break down as we get older. And that's related to a separate but related phenomenon known as circadian rhythms. Um, and our circadian rhythms are uh, determine the timing of when we're sleepy and when we're alert. Um, that those signals become weaker as we get older uh, in 70s, 80s. And therefore that drive to stay awake all day long and the drive to stay asleep all night long becomes a little bit weaker. So older adults end up waking up more in the middle of the night. Maybe they wake up early, but it doesn't mean their sleep need changes. And in reality, what, what happens is that sometimes that sleep shifts so that some of it's during the day. And so that there's napping during the day, but that the 24 hour sleep need is the same. Mm, right. And okay, so that's what we need. Um, what do Australians get? Based on the numbers that I've seen, it's something like 22 to 29% of Australians don't get sufficient sleep. They have poor quality of sleep. Does that, does that resonate? And can you tease those numbers apart a bit? Yeah, it's probably, it's probably higher numbers, to be honest with you, in terms oh, of the number of people who don't get, either don't get sufficient sleep, meaning quantity, or don't get good enough sleep, meaning quality. Um, because there's lots of both occupation and lifestyle decisions that lead to an inadequate opportunity to sleep. So you're just not getting enough. Um, and then there's a whole group of people who have sleep disorders um, that where they may be you know, looking like they're getting a sufficient opportunity to sleep, but that sleep is not of sufficient quality for one reason or another. So it's probably 30, 40% um, of the adult population who is not getting what we would think of as optimal sleep. And as you get older, that goes up, that, that number goes up as people get older. Which almost seems cruel in itself in that you're talking about um, you know, links between sleep and quality of sleep and Alzheimer's and memory function. It, it seems like a cruel twist of fate that the older you get where you rely more on improving or maintaining quality of your memory, it's impacted more by quality of sleep, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's interesting. There's data out there showing that healthy, very healthy older adults actually sleep pretty well. And that the, the age effect, in quotes, of deteriorating sleep is probably largely due to other medical conditions that happen to also go along with aging. So it may not be age per se that is driving the decrease in sleep quality, but, but the, all the other things that start to break down as, as we get older that are really driving the sleep quality. So that when you get folks who are very healthy, they seem to, seem to sleep pretty darn well. What's the price we pay for poor sleep? Gosh, it's huge price. Um, and so I think uh, we pay a um, physical price. Uh, so for example, I was talking about the interaction between sleep and metabolism. Um, we know that uh, both insufficient sleep and poor timing of sleep 
is associated with um, metabolic problems such that it leads to obesity. Um, it leads to insulin resistance, which is a marker of type two diabetes. So that's certainly one of the physical um, uh, prices that we pay from a cognitive perspective. Insufficient sleep is associated with um, uh, reduced efficiency of our thinking to kind of put it very generically. But um, one of the big things that breaks down is our attention and our concentration, our ability to focus. One of the things that my group looks at is decision-making in the context of sleep loss. And we see that people's decision-making does change when they're sleep deprived. So there's those sorts of, of costs. Um, and then there is um, economic cost as, as well. It's, it's something in the neighborhood of $36 billion a year cost to the Australian economy for sleep disorders and insufficient sleep. And that accounts for the direct treatment costs. It accounts for the cost of the medical consequences of not sleeping well. And it accounts for uh, absenteeism and presenteeism that is the consequence of poor sleep. And I know as we get down the, the consequences, eventually there's an interesting overlap between um, mood disorders. And I know a lot of your research is in that. So I, I want to do a, a separate deep dive in that area in particular. Sure, sure. Um, you said something online that I found um, while I guess preparing for this conversation. You talked about the impact of sleep deprivation in equivalent of blood alcohol levels. And, and the number mm -hmm. that you threw out there was if you've been awake for 18 hours. So if you've woken up at 6 a.m., and you're driving a vehicle at midnight, you're at the equivalent of 0.05 blood alcohol level. And if it's 24 hours, you're at somewhere between 0.08 to 0.1. Is that number still consistent with research? And can you tease that apart a bit more, please? Yeah, so so first, yes, those numbers are consistent um, with the, the latest research. And I, I think it highlights just how dangerous it is to drive sleepy. And it's one of those things um, that isn't necessarily in the consciousness of um, the average Australian or average driver anywhere, really, for that matter. Um, you know, we all know it's bad to drink and drive, and, and that's been hammered into us you know, for decades now. But the sleepy driving isn't as well um, isn't as well known by the public. But I think the numbers you quoted are absolutely right. If you've been awake 18 hours, you're driving legally drunk. And if you pull an all-nighter uh, and are driving home in the morning, um, you are dangerously legally drunk while you're driving. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that's something that is really important for people to understand. And, and what's driving that danger essentially is the risk of what we call microsleeps. So these are tiny little literally a few seconds worth of sleeping. And it, you don't even necessarily have to close your eyes for the brain in essence to start to shut down and, and fall asleep. Uh, and so it doesn't take much in order to create an accident. So there's some data, I don't know if these numbers are exactly right, but it's something close to this. If you're driving in the middle of a standard lane, um, so say the left lane, and you close your eyes and fall asleep for four and a half seconds, that's enough time to leave the lane, go over the guardrail and crash your car. So it doesn't take very much inattention to create an auto accident. And if you're on a crowded highway, it takes even less 
time to hit the car in front of you should they hit their brakes. And this is why driving sleepy is so dangerous because it takes literally just a couple of seconds uh, of not being present in order to create an accident. I think it's such a visceral example of using the blood alcohol because it's something that we can culturally relate to. It's something that there's a lot of cultural stigma against. You feel guilty if you're ever in that position. And like you say, I'm not quite sure that that has mirrored culturally for sleep deprivation. You can easily justify getting behind the wheel when you're sleepy, at least culturally in our minds. But um, with alcohol, it's it's really been been hammered uh, hammered home that that's not an acceptable thing that you are taking um, taking a significant risk. Um, can you split out in terms of sleep a little bit the difference between non-REM and REM, and maybe what some of the phases are of sleep and when during the night we experience those, and maybe talk about how our awake and sleep patterns are influenced and whether we can really catch up on sleep. Can you go down that rabbit warren, please? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So um, it's really interesting that sleep is actually not a single state of consciousness. We don't simply close our eyes, fall asleep. Nothing much happens. Eight hours later, we open our, we wake up and open our eyes. Sleep is actually two distinct states of consciousness. One of those is called rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. And the other one very creatively is called non-rapid eye movement sleep or non-REM sleep. Non-REM sleep is further broken down into three sleep stages. Again, very creatively labeled stage one, stage two, stage three. Uh, And and the way that that works is that um, stage one is the stage of sleep where we're really not quite sure whether we're awake or asleep and our mind is wandering, but we don't necessarily have a lot of control over where it's going. We kind of hear the things going on around us, but we don't really process it. Um, uh, I think much like the students experience when I lecture for an hour at a time and they just start the rain starts to drift. Um, that's stage one sleep. Stage two sleep is kind of the Goldilocks of, of sleep. It's not too deep. It's not too shallow. It uh, just hums right along. We spend, you know, give or take, I should back, we spend about maybe 5% of the night in stage one sleep. So it's very, it's just a transition stage. Roughly 40 to 50% of the night in stage two sleep. Then there's stage three sleep. Stage three sleep is also called deep sleep, slow wave sleep, delta sleep, uh, it's got a lot of names that have gotten out there, but it's the really deep, I'm sleeping like a log. It's very hard to wake me up stage of sleep. It's the stage that's associated with feeling refreshed and restored when you wake up in the morning. Uh, if you get a lot of good slow wave sleep, good stage three, you're going to feel like your sleep did you some good last night. Um, it's also the stage of sleep. If we happen to wake up out of it, that we have the biggest brain fog for the longest amount of time. Uh, where the brain literally isn't waking up as quickly as the body. Uh, And then, so those are the three non-REM stages. And then there is REM sleep. Um, uh, It's called rapid eye movement sleep because our eyes move underneath our eyelids um, while we are dreaming. So REM sleep is, is the dreaming stage of sleep, or at least we do the majority of our dreaming in REM sleep, not all of it. Um, it's about 20% of the night, just like stage three is about 20% of the night. Um, and this is the stage of sleep that, uh, you know, again, we do most of our dreaming in and the way the sleep cycles work is someone will fall asleep. They'll get a very brief amount of stage one, then they get some stage two, then they get some stage three. It's sort of like walking down the ladder, if you will. And then after a big chunk of stage three, they get their first episode of REM sleep. And that cycle 
takes 80 to 100 minutes in the average person. And then the cycle kind of repeats throughout the course of the night, but it doesn't repeat in a perfectly symmetrical way. The beginning of the night is dominated by lots of deep stage three sleep and very little REM sleep. The reason for that is stage three is the marker of our sleep need. So we build up sleep need all day long while we're awake. And then essentially we pay off that sleep need via our stage three. So the brain wants to, to get all of that good stage three in the first half of the night so it can pay off its sleep debt. And then the second half of the night is dominated by the dreaming sleep or the REM sleep, which is often why people will wake up out of dreams at the end of the night, because they're just having a lot more of that stage of sleep at the end of the night. Um, it's also the case that because we pay off our sleep need at the beginning of the night, our sleep need isn't as strong by the time the end of the night rolls around. And so we're a little bit more arousable. Um, and so that's kind of why people are waking up out of their dreams. But that's the, that's the basic structure of sleep and the nights of sleep. And then each of those sleep stages preferentially serve different functions in, in terms of the functions of sleep. And I'm guessing it's a fair assumption to say that you can't just cut out one portion of it. And if you do, so, so you can't just cut off the early stages of sleep and go to bed at 1 a.m., and sleep for your eight hours and assume that you're going to be okay. You're going to pay a price for that cut. And likewise, you can't move it much early and wake up super early and expect it to sort of all work out, right? Yes and no. So if you stay awake an extra three or four hours, go to bed at one or two in the morning, say. you. So I mentioned earlier, the longer we stay awake, the more sleep need we build up or the more sleep debt we build up. Whenever you eventually go to sleep, the brain wants to pay off that debt. So even if you stay awake half the night and go to sleep at two or three in the morning, it's not like your brain's going to automatically shift into the stages of sleep related to the second half of the night. It's actually going to say, no, wait, I've got a huge sleep need now. I'm going to pay off all of this sleep debt and get lots of deep stage three sleep right away, no matter what time you go to bed. Um, and then if you sleep long enough, it will decide, okay, now it's time to get the REM sleep at the, at the end of my night. Um, and so the brain will try to maintain that balance as well as it can. Now, there are, there are limits to that. If you go to bed super early, like you went to bed at six in the afternoon, it, you probably wouldn't get as much of the deep stage three sleep because you don't have so much sleep need. Um, on the other hand, if you, if you go to bed at a normal time, but you wake up at four in the morning, you're actually cutting off the brain's opportunity to get some of that dreaming sleep that it normally would have gotten in the last couple hours of the night. Uh, so you can, you can intentionally or inadvertently cut off certain stages of sleep, but the brain does its best to maintain that balance of what it needs. And if you go for a sleepless night or you've got a lot of pressure and you're not sleeping well, um, or for whatever reason, your sleep was disrupted, and you've got some days in front of you where you can catch up. How good is the catch-up experience that you get? So you'll never catch up 100% of what you miss uh, in terms of the minutes or hours of what you're losing. Uh, however, the brain, again, very cleverly tries particularly to make up the deep stage three that it, it needs. Uh, and so if you go three or four days with really disrupted sleep because you're stressed out or very short sleep just because you're, you're trying to pack other things into your day. 
the brain will try to get, when you finally do start getting sleep, your brain will try to get extra stage three deep sleep to make up for that loss. Again, you'll never make up 100% of it, but you will be able to make up some of, of that sleep. Um, and it won't, particularly if the sleep disruption or loss is very short term, if it's a few days or a week or something, that's not going to do permanent damage to you. The brain will, will kind of get what it needs, even if it doesn't get 100% of what you lost. The problems become when the disruption is, is months and years. Um, I, I do want to point out, though, that actually, if you can predict that you're going to have a period of time where your sleep is reduced for whatever reason, it's actually far better to bank sleep than it is to try to make it up. So we know that getting extra sleep before a predictable sleep deprivation period does you more good in terms of functioning during the sleep deprivation than trying to make up the sleep on the back end. Hmm. That's interesting. Can you speak a little bit about uh, caffeine, caffeine cycles and the sleep debt impact and, and the way that caffeine affects that, that adenosine, that sleep um, pressure cycle? Yeah, so um, I think the, the first thing for people to know is that caffeine can affect your sleep for eight to 10 hours after you drink it, which is much longer than we feel the, you know, the psychoactive alerting properties of the caffeine. Um, and that's one of the reasons why even having a coffee you know, after lunch, let alone after dinner, can, can be disruptive, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly to our sleep. Um, and what it tends to do is make it harder to fall asleep and harder to get into deep sleep. Uh, so it has that, that kind of disruptive effect on uh, the sleep cycle. On the other hand, um, caffeine is remarkably good at waking us up and making us more alert, which is why it's the, the first thing many of us, including myself, reach for in the morning after we get out of bed. Um, so, I, so it has... Uh, I think very good and very bad uh, potential properties to it with respect to sleep. I always wonder about people's sense of the impact that caffeine has on them. I had a uncle who used to drink a big pot of black filtered coffee and he used to have it by his bedside stand. And he'd always say, oh, you know, coffee doesn't, doesn't affect me at all. You know, I can drink gallons of the stuff. And he always complained about struggling to fall asleep and to remain asleep. And it seemed really obvious uh, in your clinical experience, how good do you think are our abilities to assess and determine the impact that caffeine has on our sleep and our sleep patterns? Uh, for some people, probably not a very good one. Uh, I mean, I think that that's true with a lot of things. Alcohol is extraordinarily disruptive to people's sleep, for example, but lots of people will drink it because they think it helps them fall asleep faster. And that's a, a we can have that conversation later, I guess. Alcohol sort of has this uh, interesting dual effect with respect to sleep, but, but caffeine in particular, the interesting thing is there actually is, um, a genetic variation of the adenosine receptors that lead people to be insensitive to the effects of caffeine. And therefore those people actually can drink a pot of coffee and at 10 o'clock and fall asleep at 10 30, just fine. Uh, there are probably more people out there who think they are that type of person than who actually are that type of person. Um, but, but that complicates the clinical picture for us uh, because of course we don't, 
do genetic testing, you know, on the people in the clinic. So we don't have no idea if the person sitting in front of us has this genetic variant or not. Um, so typically what we suggest, anytime someone is experiencing uh, significant insomnia, so an inability to fall asleep or an inability to stay asleep, one of the first things that makes sense to do is start to cut back on caffeine in terms of um, when you stop drinking it in the evening and the amount you stop drinking, precisely because for the majority of people, it does negatively affect their sleep and it does so for much longer than they realize. I definitely do not have that um, faulty adenosine receptor, or not faulty, uh, affected adenosine receptor. I, I guess for those who may have it, they'd also lose the ramp up, the boost up, the wake up effect in the morning from caffeine, wouldn't they? So they just have nothing. They would, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be in a lot of trouble if that were me. <laughs> <laughs> and alcohol, why is alcohol so bad for sleep? The thing with alcohol is if we drink alcohol to the point of social intoxication, let's say, so not passing out, right? But you got a good little buzz going. You actually will fall asleep faster than if you didn't drink the alcohol. And not only that, you go into deep stage three sleep faster. So I said earlier, you go from stage one to stage two to stage three. Well, if you, if you have alcohol on board and your blood alcohol is say, you know, 0.1 or less, you're actually going to very quickly go into stage three sleep and you're going to stay in it longer. And in fact, you're probably going to skip the first REM episode in order to get more stage three. So it has this very seductive quality that I drink alcohol, I'm having trouble sleeping, so I drink some alcohol. Lo and behold, I fall asleep faster and I sleep deeper at the beginning of the night. Seems like a pretty good deal to me. But what happens is once we metabolize all the alcohol, and so this is typically going to be you know, somewhere in the middle of the night if it's roughly one standard drink per hour that we metabolize. Two things happen at that stage. One is our body temperature goes up. And when our body temperature goes up, that's a signal to our brain that we're supposed to be awake. And the second thing that happens is that there is this release of neurotransmitters in the brain, which are the kind of communication chemicals in the brain. There's a release of these neurotransmitters that are supposed to be around when we're awake and not be around when we're asleep. So the brain is getting two strong signals in the middle of the night that you're supposed to be awake. And that typically then results in us waking up. And sometimes we wake up for a long period of time and can't fall back asleep. Sometimes it's just wake up, fall asleep, wake up, fall asleep, wake up, fall asleep for the rest of the night. And then when we are asleep, because we have all of this alerting signal coming into our brain, the sleep we get is very shallow. Uh, and so essentially, while the first half of the night seems pretty, pretty hunky-dory, the second half of the night sleep is really ruined. And so when you add it all together, people would be much better off taking 45 minutes or an hour to fall asleep and then having a relatively normal sleep cycle relative to drinking, falling asleep quickly, and then having the second half of the night totally destroyed. Can we talk through um, insomnia a little bit, uh, restless legs and sleep apnea? I guess we've talked about lifestyle factors a little bit, um, caffeine and alcohol. What about the things that aren't as directly in our control? So let's just sort of get the definition out of the way, right? Insomnia is when you have a hard time falling asleep, staying asleep, and or waking up too early in the morning uh, and, and unable to fall back asleep. When that happens 
three nights a week or more for three months or more. That's the kind of the clinical definition of insomnia. And then you layer on top of that, there are daytime problems that the person can directly tie back to poor sleep at night. And those daytime problems could be memory concentration problems. They could be um, irritability, depression kinds of problems. Uh, they could be sort of vague, like I just have a harder time getting my work or study done when I'm not, when I haven't slept well. Um, or they could be frank sleepiness, right? But it's something that's going on during the day that they tie back to the fact that they haven't been sleeping well. And when I say you have a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep, what I mean is more than a half an hour to fall asleep, more than a half an hour awake in the middle of the night, or waking up more than a half an hour early, unable to fall asleep. Sorry, Professor Drummond, is it and or is it all between those? Do you need either half an hour delay or half an hour wake up at night or half an hour early or is it and? It's an or. It's You only need one. Yeah, you only need one of those things. Most people have more than one, but you only need one. Um, so that's that's what insomnia is. And the interesting thing is the life cycle of insomnia is such that everybody has risk factors for developing insomnia, just like we all have risk factors for developing cancer. But of course, we're not going to all develop cancer and we're not going to all develop insomnia. But everybody has these risk factors that we call predisposing factors. Then people who develop insomnia have some precipitating event that is a trigger that kicks off the initial episode of insomnia. This is typically some sort of stress in our life. So it could be financial stress, it could be relationship stress, it could be work stress, uh, it could be uh, the stress of the last two years of COVID, um, or it even could be good stress, right? Planning a wedding is very stressful, but it's a, it's a good sort of stress. Any of those sorts of stressors can kick off a short-term period of not sleeping well. The majority of people, when that stress goes away, their sleep goes back to normal. But 10 to 15% of people go on to develop a chronic insomnia. And those are people who typically start to engage in what we call perpetuating factors. Um, and perpetuating factors are the things that maintain an insomnia once it's started. And these often are things that we do to compensate for getting bad sleep that ironically, they might work for a night or two, but ironically, they actually make the problem worse in the long run. So for example, going to bed early or sleeping in late are the kinds of things that we might do after three or four nights of bad sleep in order to kind of catch up, if you will. Uh, but if we do that too many nights in a row, it starts to actually make the problem worse. Um, napping during the day, drinking tons of caffeine during the day might be something we do to make up for bad sleep last night, but again, even though it's effective for a day or two, in the long run, it starts to make things worse. And then the big one is anything somebody does in bed other than sleeping can actually maintain the insomnia. What do people do in bed other than sleeping? They play on their devices, they watch TV, they read, they may talk to their bed partner. Um, they might actually lie there trying to fall asleep and instead they're problem solving and ruminating and worrying about whatever it is that's stressing them out. Um, so they start to get frustrated and, and angry. All of these things actually um, start to develop an association between the bed and being awake rather than between the bed and being asleep. So the brain starts to think, I'm in bed, I'm reading, I'm in bed, I'm talking to my partner, I'm in bed, I'm watching TV. I'm in bed, I'm tossing and turning, 
ruminating about my problems. I'm in bed stressed out and frustrated and angry that I'm not falling asleep. And the common denominator is I'm in bed, I'm awake. I'm in bed, I'm awake. I'm in bed, I'm awake. And pretty soon the brain starts to see the bed as a place not to sleep, but as a place to be awake and do all these other things. And so the classic sign is somebody falling asleep in front of the TV on the couch. And they think, ah, oh, thank God I'm getting a good night of sleep tonight. And they get up, they get in bed and bam, their eyes pop open and their mind starts to churn and they can't turn it off and they can't fall asleep. That is a classic sign of what we call conditioned arousal. The bed has been conditioned to create arousal rather than create sleepiness. And that's when insomnia really takes on a life of its own and gets going. So that's probably a much longer explanation than you wanted. <laughs> no, that's, that's brilliant. Is it a fair conclusion then to say, if you do feel like you're starting to go down that road where you are beginning to sleep, if you're awake, don't sit on your device in bed, hop off, go to the couch, go to the kitchen, do something else to break that potential link, that potential conditioning. Is that the conclusion? Yeah. So one of the best evidence-based treatments that we have for insomnia is to follow a very simple mantra, which is do nothing in bed, but sleep and sleep nowhere, but the bed. So it's exactly what you're saying. Get out of, if you're going to be reading, you're going to be ruminating and stressing out. If you're going to be on your device, if you're going to be talking to your partner, get out of bed and do it somewhere else. Don't let the bed become associated with being awake and doing all these other things. Only get in the bed when you feel like you're going to fall asleep. And if you lie there for a little while and can't fall asleep, get back up out of the bed until you become sleepy again and then give it another go. So I think that's exactly right. You want to break this, I'm in bed, I'm awake, I'm in bed, I'm awake kind of pattern that people get into. What about sleep apnea? I know a lot of people struggle sleeping or they, they find that they're restless and it turns out that they, they have sleep apnea, particularly men, um, particularly men that are overweight. Uh, how does apnea affect your sleep? And, and I guess, is there an easy cure to that? I would infer that there is because you get those um, machines that you wear. Is that kind of slam dunk once you get it? Yeah. So sleep apnea um, uh, very broadly is when you stop breathing at night while you're sleeping. And essentially what happens is that the airway that we have, um, that we typically breathe through, starts to collapse at night. And uh, for everybody that happens a little bit because we're lying on our back, which means gravity kind of lets our tongue drop back and our soft palate drop in, into the airway. All our muscles relax as we start to sleep. So it kind of closes the airway down. For some people, that airway starts to close so much that they start to snore. So snoring essentially is the sound associated with forcing air down a almost entirely closed airway. And then what happens is for some people, the airway completely collapses. And so it's like a straw that gets pinched and no air can get down there. And that's when they stop breathing. And so the typical pattern that you see in sleep apnea is snore, 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 pause. And then the person wakes up with a snort and a gasp trying to get a bunch of air then they fall back asleep, snore, 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 pause. And the only way people can start breathing again is for the brainstem to wake them up. So they wake up, they start breathing again, and then they follow that pattern all night long. And what's really frightening is that um, in order for a, so when you stop breathing, that's called an apnea event. That's why the name sleep apnea, uh, that's where it comes from, right? So in order for an apnea event to be clinical, 
of clinical concern and has to last at least 10 seconds. Uh, and people that's a might long time. have these, that, that, and that's a minimum, right? That's so a terrifyingly long time not to breathe. Yes. And now imagine that you're not breathing for at least 10 seconds at a time for 30, 40, 50, 80 times an hour. And sometimes that pause in breathing can be 30, 40, 60 seconds long. And so this is why sleep apnea then is such a concern in sleep disorder. And, and ironically, many people who have it don't even know because of course they're sleeping and they wake up in order to start breathing, but they only wake up very briefly and then they fall back asleep and the whole process starts again. So often, particularly people without a bed partner have no idea that they have sleep apnea. They just know that they don't feel very good when they wake up in the morning. Sleep hasn't been very refreshing. Um, they might have a headache because, you know, if you're not breathing for long periods of time, you're not getting oxygen. And if you're not getting oxygen, that's obviously a really bad thing for your heart. Um, and it's a really bad thing for your brain. And so people end up with um, cardiovascular disease, uh, high rates of heart attacks, strokes, pulmonary embolisms, all kinds of nasty stuff. Um, and uh, so often when people come to the clinic, it's because their bed partners notices them stop breathing and it freaks out the bed partner when you stop breathing at night. Uh, and that's what brings them into the sleep clinic. And um, the good news though, as you suggested, is that sleep apnea is very treatable. There are multiple ways to treat sleep apnea. The most effective, meaning like 99% effective, is to wear what's called a um, CPAP mask or a continuous positive airway pressure mask. And, and it's a little mask that either fits over your nose and your mouth or just your nose, and it blows air down your airway all night long. And the reason that's effective is it keeps the airway from collapsing, right? So imagine blowing through a straw it's very hard to then pinch that straw closed because you're constantly blowing the air through there. Uh, and that's essentially what the CPAP does. It's extraordinarily effective. And I have seen so many people come back and say that it's changed their life and it's the best sleep they've ever gotten because now they're not snoring, they're breathing all night long, they're getting plenty of oxygen, they're sleeping like a baby and they feel great in the morning. The problem is probably something close to 50% of the people never learn to tolerate wearing this mask and having the air blow down their nose all night long. So you need other alternatives for that 50% of the people. And there are a few alternatives. Um, there's a dental device called mandibular advancement device that um, uh, kind of holds the jaw forward and keeps um, the physical aspects of your mouth from collapsing back and blocking the airway at night. It works in some people, not all the people. There is surgery, which works, um, again, only in maybe 50% of the people. And half the people who get the surgery a year down the road, they're right back where they started. Um, so it, it is not in the long run a particularly helpful or effective intervention for the majority of people. Mm. Yeah, and if anyone's been a bed partner for someone who's had... Um, sleep apnea or even just heard your mate at a camping trip um, sleep next to you um, it's it's actually a terrifying thing to listen to because you think for a moment that that mate of yours is dying next to you you know it's, it's fully silent for a moment it's it's not a very um, comforting thing to to wake up to either 
No, no, not at all. And that's why, like I said, we often see the bed partner is the one who drives the individual into the clinic um, as opposed to the individual themselves. Um, and, and I should say, you know, in addition to all of the medical concerns and fallout that I talked about, the other big consequence is daytime sleepiness. Uh, and so the rate, for example, of auto accidents in people with untreated sleep apnea is much, much higher than people without sleep apnea because they're much more likely to fall asleep behind the wheel. And not just behind the wheel, but they can fall asleep, you know, in an extreme case in the middle of a conversation because they're so sleepy. So, so there's a lot of reasons to, to get this assessed and get it treated. So I got a, uh, a new mattress. I splashed out and got myself a, a, a great mattress, what I thought was a great mattress. And I was really struggling sleeping on it. And I realized I was waking up at nighttime, really hot and uncomfortable, I'd have really shallow sleep, a lot of dreaming in the middle of the night. I couldn't fall back asleep. And it dawned on me that I was sleeping very hot and this mattress just wasn't dissipating the heat. So I've now got one of those water cool systems that sit on top of the mattress and pumps water through and you can adjust it or it measures your temperature. And oh my gosh, it has been an absolute life changer to me. And so many of my uh, my male friends that I've spoken to immediately jump onto that idea and they're like oh my gosh I sleep hot too I run hot and I wake up and I keep thinking that maybe it's something else or maybe I heard the dogs barking or something like that there seems to be this theme about men sleeping really hot and it being bad for sleep and impacting sleep do you see that a lot in your sleep lab and um, are these sort of sleep devices becoming more common what are your thoughts on them it's a good question so I mean I do think so I honestly I don't know of any data around that issue or body temperature and is it you know particularly higher at night in men than women and does that disturb the sleep um certainly i agree with you anecdotally men seem to complain much more of sleeping hot women complain more of cold feet or cold hands when they're sleeping uh, and and the interesting thing is either extreme makes it harder to sleep if you're if you're really hot when you sleep you can't sleep if you're really cold when you sleep you can't sleep. And in particular, if your feet are really cold, there, there is actual data um, showing that if you make somebody's feet cold while they're trying to sleep, they can't sleep. And part of the reason for that actually is in order to sleep, we need to have, in order to fall asleep, we need to have our body temperature on the decline, right? So it doesn't have to be at an all-time low, but it needs to be heading downward. And the, the way that we lose body heat, core body temperature is to lose heat through our, primarily our hands, our feet and our foreheads. And so, and the way you do that, of course, is you have blood vessels that are close to the surface that are releasing the heat to the surface. That's why your hands and your feet would feel warm. Someone who has particularly cold feet, for example, they're not losing heat through their feet the way that they're supposed to. Therefore, they're not bringing their body temperature down. Therefore, they have a harder time sleeping. Um, and there was a, a really creative series of studies done in Switzerland, um, probably back in the early 90s, um, where, where they actually had people sleep with or without battery powered socks that would keep their feet warm. Uh, and they showed indeed, if you have cold feet, it's hard to sleep. And if you have warm feet, it's easier to sleep. Huh. I guess intuitively, um, my wife's like that. She, she always wants to sleep with a hot water bottle at her feet in wintertime intuitively people just adjust to that that's right well it's good for you that's a hot water bottle and not like using your calves to keep her feet yeah 
you know, that happens too. <laughs> um, you've talked about, or you've, you've done a lot of work on mood disorders. Um, and I, I'm just so curious by, the, by that field. Um, I know some of the um, conversation around mood disorders, particularly depression, is that sleep impacts depression or, or vice versa. Which way does it go? And, and what have you seen in your studies? Yeah, so it goes both directions. Um, sleep has a negative impact on mood and on anxiety disorders, uh, on substance abuse, on psychosis, on a number of mental health problems. Um, and many mental health problems in turn will impact sleep. And so they seem to be, I think it's really important to know sleep difficulties are not just a symptom of mental health disorders. Even if a mental health disorder is the thing that kicks off the sleep problem, the sleep problems, particularly insomnia, will take on a life of their own and become an independent disorder that needs treatment. Just as importantly, somebody who has insomnia now has never had any kind of mental health problem. If they have insomnia now, they're actually at significantly increased risk of, in the future, developing depression, developing anxiety, developing PTSD if they're exposed to a trauma, developing bipolar disorder if they're genetically at risk for that, developing schizophrenia if they're genetically at risk for that. So having sleep problems now um, puts people at risk for a variety of mental health disorders down the road. This brings us to the end of our first part with Professor Sean Drummond on sleep. At this point in our conversation, Professor Drummond had to move on to a different commitment. We felt like there was still a lot to cover and that we hadn't really spoken about sleep and its relationship to mental health. So Professor Drummond kindly offered for us to take that up again and we'll release that as part two. But join us for that part if you want to find out about how sleep can impact mental health and also the other way around. Mental health can impact sleep. So it's a two-way street as we'll soon discover. See you then.